And you'll figure it out. As time passes, you'll start to remember things that you didn't want to see, the red flags, the way they snapped at the waitress, you know, something not right. So you'll start to get it later. But in that moment that they left you, that's when they look so unbelievably delicious. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with my friend, Susan Winter. She is a best-selling author and relationship expert. She's been on just about everything. Oprah, The Today Show, Good Morning America. She's super, super sharp. One of my favorite people to talk about the subject of relationships, dating, breakups, et cetera. And today we're gonna be focusing on something that happens during the holidays quite a bit here, those breakups. It's breakup season. We're gonna talk about dismantling your ex's impact on you and uh, the power to affect you or taking some of that back, regaining mental clarity and emotional serenity and reclaiming a little bit of self-esteem, confidence, and wholeness through what we call the breakup triage. This isn't just meditate and do yoga and feel better. This is the myths you go through, the rationalizations you go through, and how to get yourself through a rough breakup, especially in the beginning, to put a little bit of uh, tourniquet on that wound there. We're glad to have you with us here today at AOC, so enjoy this one with Susan Winter. Oh, and by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the rest of the AOC toolbox where we discuss things like reading, body language, and nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, mentorship, influence, persuasion, networking, everything that we teach here at The Art of Charm. If you're here in the States, you can text CHARMED, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444, Anywhere else, just go to theartofcharm.com and also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. That's where you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here's Susan Winter. I'm really excited to speak to you again about this because I think, especially around the holidays, I've noticed, and, and maybe you can tell me why this is, I have my own theories, breakups seem to happen more around the holidays, whereas I thought it would happen less because it's like, well, she can't be alone for Thanksgiving and Christmas, that's just mean, I'll wait till January. It actually turns out to be more the case, and my theory is because they don't wanna bring someone home to their parents for Thanksgiving slash Christmas who they're not serious about because they think it's kind of like, you're really creating an extra bond there, and then in January you're like, well that was fun, but it's over, and it's just weird, and your family's asking about them. I get many more breakup emails, requests, phone calls, and things like that. Literally, it's like shopping season. Christmas shopping season is breakup season as well. I agree, and I think that's a really astute point, Jordan, because it is quite notable that that is a time. Uh, my media director, Lauren, is an awesome girl, and she said, Susan, not only the holidays, on my birthday, within 24 hours of my actual birthday, that seems to be the breakup time. She goes, they know it's my birthday. I think it's a time of reassessment. It's a time in the holidays where we go back to our family. And if anything, rightfully so, what you said, it's clear who is in our inner circle and who isn't. And we make that judgment like, I've got to do it now and I get to escape to my parents. It's like I can say, well, I, you know, I'm so sorry. Let's go to our respective parents for the holidays. So it's kind of like you are thinking about who is family. And if you were wanting to break up, now's the perfect time because it's clear that you don't want them at that elevated position in your life. And you get to escape. Right, yeah, I'd, I hadn't thought about the escape. It's like, oh, sorry I haven't answered your calls for five days, I've been eating turkey or whatever, right, with my cousins. It's pretty convenient. Yeah, exactly, so it's the perfect reason to get away to kind of like not even deal with it. I'll tell you though, the birthday thing, I wish I didn't know this about some people, but when I was in college, I remember guys breaking up with girls like a week or a few days before their birthday because they're like, 
yeah, I mean, otherwise I have to buy a gift and then do it. And I remember thinking, you scumbag. But, you know, when you're young and you have no money, I guess it's one of those things you put into consideration. Now it's the opposite. We go, I'm going to get her a really nice gift and then do it because then I won't feel as bad. Both are terrible, but one is slightly worse, I think. Many people who've heard you on the show before know you're just like laser focused, razor sharp. You've been on Oprah on the Today Show. I mean, you're kind of the relationship coach in many, many ways for a lot of people. And you've been doing this for a long time. I won't ask you to tell me how long because. Oh, no, 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 actually not that long. I was an opera singer and then I was on television. I had my own show on broadcast. I was uh, doing financial news on what's now CNBC. I started this around 2000. I wrote a book, an off thing, because my boyfriend was 20 years younger, but I did it an hour outside of New York in a remote area that was like Appalachia. Beautiful, but I mean, the opposite, like a vacation home. And all hell broke loose because I'd flipped to 40, he flipped to 19, and it was just, you know, it was quite a big deal. So I wrote <laughs> Older Women, Younger Men, just like pencil and paper off the cuff, you know, unknown writer, and it became an international bestseller. But when I got on camera, I'd been on camera or on stage for years. So the message was very clear. And I was done. Jordan, by 2003, after Oprah, I was like, okay, it's out there. I'm done. Then I looked at the dating and I realized open sexuality, everybody's playing games, nobody's being honest, you know, and I thought, wow, okay, I've got something more to say. So it's really been a relatively short amount of time. You know, when you find your voice, you just find your voice. Yes. You're very good at this. I mean, you are one of a very, very short list of people, yourself, Kim Seltzer, that I go to when I'm like, how do I handle this particular relationship thing? Because, you know, you can't ask your guy friends 99% of the time because they're just like, I don't know, bro, here's another beer, right? That's what we get from our friends. That's the reason I started this show in the first place is because I was sick of hearing, I don't know, bro, here's a beer uh, every time I had difficulty in my life. <laughs> so let's talk about this. I'm, you have a really interesting philosophy on dating, which is funny how much it mirrors startup philosophy and business, which is you need an exit strategy. We just interviewed Michael Gerber, author of The E-Myth, and you need to have your exit strategy in mind when you're dating because everyone dating and seeking love has to get skilled at the exit because endings are a reality. In most of our modern dating, think about it. Hook up first, figure out why I'm there secondarily. You are going to have more mismatches than you are successes. It is like a startup. There's going to be a lot of fumbling and learning curve and failures. I can't believe that anybody would start something when they don't know how to effectively exit. Think about it. When you learn to drive a car, they do teach you where the brake is. When you start to learn how to ski, they teach you how to fall on the bunny slope so you don't break your neck. So Jordan, I got my first pair of rollerblades, like in the, I don't know, mid nineties. And I knew how to ice skate. So I thought, oh, it's like ice skating. And I start down a little hill and then I'm picking up speed. I did not know how to stop. Nobody taught me how to stop. And I had to dive into some bushes to stop myself from going into traffic because I tried to do my skating stop. So love is an extreme sport. And can you imagine? People have never thought it through. They all want to fall in love. But the one thing that stops everybody from loving is the fear of being hurt. Yet that very thing they never address. That to me is crazy. If you don't have a plan going in and a plan to get out, you're just, you know, I cut my finger. Okay, I can let it go. Or I can clean it out, put on peroxide, uh, put some ointment, put a band-aid. There's protocol. 
So there is also an established protocol that you can use for breakups. And I don't know, maybe people haven't discussed it. Maybe nobody thought about it. Maybe they didn't detail it, but I've got like seven little steps. And just so you know, I think you should know before you go in. Yeah, I think the reason people don't go after these particular steps is because it's kind of like when you're looking at the flight attendants, I almost said stewardess. I know we're not supposed to use that word anymore, but old habits die hard. When you're looking at the flight attendant and they're like, please give us a few minutes of your attention. And it's like, I don't know, a minute and a half of telling you what to do in case of a water landing, which you probably won't make it through anyway. But I think most of us just go and rather play Candy Crush. It's not just because of the unlikely uh, scenario coming to fruition, but I think there's a large part of me and certainly other people that doesn't really want to think about like, okay, if we're going down, man, this is it. And I always chastise myself, look, man, pay attention for like five minutes, at least know where the exit is, know where that little flotation device is, because you're really going to regret it if this thing is in the Hudson River or whatever, and you've got to get out and you go, oh, wait, what was going on again? Or you can't see and you can't get out because you were playing Candy Crush. You talk about feeling stupid in your last few moments there. I know. You just do it once. We don't want to think about this. Once you learn it, once you just go over it, you don't have to think about it every single time. You know, you pay attention once. Okay, here's the exit. Feel for, do I have my pack under the seat? Does it come out of the side? I always do that. And you think you know how to put on the jacket? Wait till you're panicked. You will not know how to put on that jacket. <laughs> no, right? no, even though there's like one hole that your head can go through. And and I understand <laughs> that that we also do something very similar when we break up because we're like, I know how to handle a breakup. I just got to stay positive. And then the breakup happens and you're like crying and your friends all think you're insane because you can't stop talking about it. And you're going to depression and you're taking time off work and you're eating ice cream out of the tub. I mean, I'm just talking from my own personal experience yeah. here, so I don't know what everybody else does. No, you're right. It can be devastating, but like anything, if you know what to do, if you have information, it's less daunting. You know, when we have a solution, it doesn't seem like a problem. So being informed helps you. You're still going to feel pain, but you'll know some things to do. You'll catch yourself mentally because the cure to emotional pain is mental. And that's the trick. So once you just go through the mental steps, you'll be fine. Okay. One point that I thought was brilliant in the breakup triage audio that you'd sent me, which is we only really are afraid of things for which we have no solutions. So it becomes much easier to jump into a relationship when we think, all right, in the inevitable moment in which this ends, I have at least some strategies, some tactics that I can implement so I'm far less afraid because the problem is in some of the email that I get from men and women, they go, look, I got hurt so bad last time, I just don't wanna do it again. How do I get back in the game? Because they know that they have to do that. And this is going to help with that because we only fear that for which we have no solutions. So I definitely understand being hesitant to love somebody else when we're not adept at managing that ending. So let's dive in here because there's a lot of people who give power to their ex in some way, or at least allow that breakup to continually affect them. They have a lack of mental clarity. Yeah. Their self-esteem takes a nosedive. Where do we start recovering from this? Well, the idea of breakup triage is I feel like a field medic running out to assist you, like somebody's had their leg blown off. I've got to stop the bleeding, and the bleeding is the emotional bleed out. So the first thing you have to do is stabilize the person. The number one step, that I start with is they need to know why. 
the first pass. This is just the first phase. This isn't the first hours, days, couple of weeks of a breakup. You need to have a reason. Even if your partner didn't give you a reason, if they ghosted you, you need to come up with one or two sentence answer. It's just temporary. You can review this three months from now when you've got some emotional distance, but come up with a reason. It was the wrong timing. They drink too much. They can't commit. They can't be faithful. It was a mismatch. You need to have some kind of reason because humans are categorical machines. We use language and labels to give us context. And so oftentimes you might find that you have a partner that tells you, I don't know. And we get so angry with, I don't know. But it is true. I've really researched this. There are people who honestly don't know why it's not working for them. So if your partner has told you, I don't know, it could be one that they don't want to hurt you and tell you the truth. I'm just not that into you. You're really bad in bed. You've got bad breath. I don't like your disposition. Or it could be that they truly do not know. They don't know what the reason is that it's not working for them. It is a fact. So even if you hear, I don't know, come up with your own solution. Give it a phrase. And that's at least one level of clarification. It's temporary. You can review it later, but you've got the first step to start to put that bandage around this gaping wound to start to stabilize yourself. And I like what you said about putting things on the shelf for later when we're more stable, because it doesn't seem like the right time to diagnose and dissect issues when we can't control our emotions and we're super upset and we're flying off the handle or you know we're crying ourselves to sleep. That's not a good time to think, what objective feedback can I take from this experience, right? You can't think clearly. Now, this is a stabilizing process. This is just getting you functional. That's all it is. This is just the first phase of what to do. When the emergency happens, here's how you handle it. Because otherwise things can sort of go out of control and spiral downwards, right? Yeah, and you're gonna want more conversation from your mate and they may not wanna discuss it. You know, people are bad at breakups. When I see how people break up, I've even been with a woman that I know, I feel she's gonna break up with a guy friend of mine and I'll say to her, are you done? And she'll say, yes, I'm done. And then I'll say to her, you need to tell him. And then she won't tell him. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, it's uncomfortable. They don't know how to do it. It's like talking about death. We don't want to deal with it. We know it happens. We'll figure it out later. So you may not be with a skilled dater that knows not only what they're doing in a relationship, but how to effectively end a relationship. You know, I always feel like I got you into this. It's my responsibility to help you process me leaving. I've always done that, but people don't want to stick around for that, and they don't want to take the responsibility. No, especially for the person who initiates the breakup, right? They've probably been thinking about it, processing it for a long time, and then they finally turn the corner where they're like, all right, I can drop this bomb now, and the other person is just blindsided. So the person who initiates it is like, oh, what a relief. Oh my God, I can't wait to put that behind me. I'm totally done. This is phenomenal. Time to go eat some turkey or whatever you know the timing is. And the other person goes, they're just standing there with like a bag full of groceries to cook dinner that night and two airline tickets or something. And they're like, wait, what? Hold on a second. And the other person's like, bye, you know, jogging down the street as they head towards their apartment. Metaphorically, hopefully, it can really throw you for a loop. It's not usually even on both sides, I think. Absolutely. So we have to come from the premise, a worst case scenario, that you may not be with somebody who is skilled in communicating, who wants to communicate, who has the empathy level to be able to be clear with you, who wants to just exit. 
You're right. And so we come from that premise. If it's better than that, awesome, but it might not be. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now, back to the show. So you mentioned that the pain is emotional and that the cure itself is mental. What do you mean by that? Are you talking about like logical cure for emotional pain? Yeah, I mean, you can't have a feeling without having a mental thought that created that feeling. So whether it's something you saw and your mind locked into something, something you thought, it's the thought that creates the emotion. It doesn't happen the other way around. It can be instantaneous. You can see a puppy and just suddenly smile because it makes you feel good. Or you can think a thought that makes you depressed. So the same way we get happy is the same way we get sad. And if you know that your emotions are coming off of how you're processing, how you're decoding and deciphering the situation, then you have more active choice over healing yourself by how you think about the relationship. If you go into the relationship like, oh my God, nobody wants me. I'm going to be alone forever. I'm not desirable. What's wrong with me? You know, you're digging a ditch much more deeply for yourself and impossible to get out of. So this is where rational thought can actually help you. Jason, you have a, you have a breakup story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one, this one was a little bit embarrassing when I was when I was younger and not uh, skilled in the love arts, as one could say. Yeah. <laughs> I broke up with my girlfriend in college on Alf stationery and mailed it to her because she was oh in God. she was in college and uh, she was downstate and I was up in Chicago. And uh, for years, my friends kept giving me uh, Alf gifts every time they could find <laughs> something just to rub it in because it was so terrible. It's like Carrie when she got broken up with a post-it note left on top of her computer. You did it the way that felt right at the time and maybe a little distanced so you didn't have to deal with the emotional fallout. You did what you were capable of doing at the time. You know, if you did that at 40, we'd say you've got some emotional work to do with yourself <laughs> like yeah. you were in college. Yeah, no, that, Jason, you're now 40, how old are you now? I'm 45, and this was honestly before cell phones, so I couldn't just like call her up and do that. You know, we did write letters all the time, and I thought it was whimsy and lighthearted. You know, it's just like, right. go sow your oats at college, and you know, we'll still be friends. And yeah, that didn't go over so well. Here's what you did that was right. You told her that it's over. 
The first breakup I had, the guy never told me. He told me to wait. I literally waited six months. I took him at his word because he was a coward. At least you weren't a coward. Yeah, now he uses Big Bang Theory stationery because that ALF <laughs> stuff, you can't, get it. you can't get the ALF stuff anymore. <laughs> you have to look on eBay. Yeah, that ALF stuff, that's collector's item right now. I eBay that stuff. Right, yeah, exactly. Anything ALF gets resold to pay the rent. Um, so does it make sense for us to figure out why the breakup happened? I mean, it kind of touches on our earlier point, which is maybe that's not super useful. Keeping the wound open is kind of what we end up doing when we think, why did this happen when we're in the emotional place, right? Yeah, it starts to bind the open wound. Just one phrase, a temporary phrase. Okay, we have a reason. Humans are logical. They need to know why things happened. You may have to make up your own reason, but that is literally step one. Because don't you find people are sobbing going, but why? See, so to stop you from going, but why, for two days, we come up with a reason. Even if it's not true, because it's just to get our brain to move forward. Yes, this is why this is part one to the breakup thing. This is the very first steps when it happens. How to stabilize yourself from this enormous crash that you've just experienced. It's the emergency protocol. So the first thing you do is find a temporary reason. It may indeed be the real reason, but it might be more complicated than that. But you can deal with the details later with a little bit more stability. Now's not the time. So we close it off. The first layer of bandage comes on with here's why it happened. You need to answer that for yourself. That helps you move forward. Once we give it a reason, like, oh, she was allergic to cats, well, right? Then what do we do? Okay, so the next step is to not go into the loop. And the loop is what I call picking at the wound. You know, it's like, don't keep talking about them. Don't keep digging around on Facebook. What are they doing? Checking out their Instagram. Who else are they with? That's putting salt in the wound. You're trying to heal. It's very tempting to know all the reasons why. You've given yourself a reason why, but you're like, but I don't really, I know there's more to it than that. So you start digging. You start digging your way through the loop. And that's what we don't want to do. We want to close that off because it keeps them actively in our minds and it keeps us obsessed with that. We keep replaying, you know, the good, the bad. And so we replay the past over and over again. Maybe you go through old photos, you look at the Facebook pages, what they said, and you can't help it because it does bubble up, but it creates this tighter and tighter circle that kind of strangulates you from moving forward in your future. We see this a lot, just I know from my own life and my own friends, I don't even need to look in my inbox for this, where people will look at things like their ex's profile and, and look at the people they're dating and are they going to parties? Because I've been home a lot, maybe I should go to parties. I gotta post photos of me having a good time. And then you're in this weird one-way competition on social media, hopefully one-way competition. And I remember a girlfriend of mine years and years and years and years ago, getting angry with me the next time I saw her, like, you just moved on right away. And I thought, what are you talking about? She goes, my brother sent me a picture from your Facebook. And I said, which one? And then I was starting to talk to her and we were trying to be rational about it. And, be, you know, we had mutual friends and stuff. And I go, look, what are you talking about? I'm, I don't even know what you mean. And she showed me like this picture of me laying down with a bunch of friends of mine that was cropped weird. So it looked like I was laying next to a girl that I wasn't dating at all. And I thought, now you go, oh, but how many days or weeks or months did you go, that freaking Jordan? How much time did you spend indulging that when it was just a random person that I hung out with for one day and never saw again? 
Right. So this is where going into the loop keeps it alive. It keeps it active. We're trying to deactivate that partner's power over us. So, you know, being obsessed with it and digging up information and thinking about them and replaying the past. And, you know, it's normal. It comes up. It just bubbles up. But this is where mental discipline will really help your emotional framework. Mental discipline, like, okay, there I'm going again. Okay, just anything. I'll look at the sky. I'll go take a run. I'll call a friend. Anything, anything. Listen to music. Do anything to stop that obsessive loop. The loop is circular. It does not move forward. It keeps you in the hole. You want to get out of that hole and get back into life. Do you have any systems for maybe not indulging the loop? Just block them from Facebook, unfriend, block the number, stay away from people you know, hang out with them all the time. Like, what's your system for that? Yes, it is so much easier to separate from a partner when you don't have to be constantly re-exposed to seeing them and thinking about them because that triggers it. It activates it. I think blocking somebody is a very juvenile part on Facebook. Just unfriend them or mute them or do something and try to discipline yourself not to dig, not to snoop. What happens if you have to work with this person? You're going to have to see them. If you have the same friends, I would prefer at all points in that journey to separate myself and give myself a chance to breathe and recover. But you will run into them at a party or maybe you'll see them on the street it reactivates you. So the more time you can have away from them and in a positive environment, the better your healing process will be. It'll move more quickly. So that is my suggestion. Nice, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned something else in the triage, which is the perfect partner myth. Tell (laughs) us about that, because I think everybody goes through that. And we do it with jobs and people. We do it with separation for pretty much anything. Any kind of loss right? That got away from us. The thing we couldn't capture, it was perfect. This is a form of self-torment. This is where our mind is working against us. So once we identify these archetypes and just speaking about it, just mentioning it, the mind will never be able to go trotting off in that location without going, oh, wait, oh, I'm snooping around the perfect partner myth. I shouldn't be doing that. That's I'm idealizing. I'm putting this person on a pedestal. So the perfect partner myth has a greater likelihood of occurring during the honeymoon period, during the first four to six months of being with a person. So it is where we don't fully know them. So our mind will automatically fill in all the wonderful scenario of what they are. Oh my God, they're the most intelligent, most beautiful, sexiest, my future. So you plan these future dreams in your mind. You take the external of the person that you find agreeable and to whom you're attracted, and you're filling in all your desires, like your perfect mate. You're seeing your future. Now, that doesn't happen so much if you've lived with somebody for 20 years, you know, and you've seen every side of them. So this is the most dangerous part when people are first dating and they're just getting into the groove and then boom, their partner's gone. You tend to think you lost everything because you don't fully know the person. You have a fictionalized version of them being perfect. So we have to understand how we create this person on a pedestal. We imagine We selectively look at the things we want and we add the things we'd like them to be. In time, they'll disappoint us, not to worry. In time, we will learn they're not perfect, but right now we think they are. So there is no perfect partner. It's a trick we play in our mind and we all do it. Right, it's like my last girlfriend was skinnier and taller and 
and more fun and smarter. And, and then you're like, wait, no, those are all the reasons that we are not together anymore or whatever, right? We, we do that a lot. Even with jobs, oh, my last job had better hours. Yeah, but you hated everyone there and everyone hated you. Yeah, well, you know, you just rationalize it. That's the thing about the breakup is that you're going to find all these conflicting emotions. One minute you've got the perfect partner. The next minute you had the worst partner in the world. So what we're trying to do in any kind of protocol is to kind of narrow the gaze so that you systematically can recognize what these markers are. Because when you already have a pre-exposure to, oh, I'm doing the perfect partner myth. Oh, I'm going into the loop. It automatically makes you aware of that process that's harming you. So it doesn't harm you. Once you're aware, you can't be unaware. So once you kind of hear these ideas, you'll feel much stronger going through that process because you now recognize where you are that's giving you that bad feeling. And you have a cure for the perfect partner myth? Like, okay, let's de-rationalize some of these traits that I'm giving this person that they didn't earn, that they don't have. Well, first of all, it tends to happen in the early stages of the partnership during the honeymoon phase where you don't know them and the sexual desire and stuff like that. And it also is based upon you're only looking at the good. You haven't had a chance to see a lot of the bad. They pulled away before they could disappoint you and harm you. So you're still believing they are perfect. Understand that people are not either all good nor all bad. So this is where your mind, just thinking it through, will help you deconstruct them and take them off that pedestal that you put them on. There's a lot you don't know about them. You're seeing what you want to see. So don't torture yourself by focusing on that. There's more. And you'll figure it out. As time passes, you'll start to remember things that you didn't want to see. The red flags, the way they snapped at the waitress, you know, something not right. So you'll start to get it later. But in that moment that they left you, that's when they look so unbelievably delicious. So how do we start this? You kind of mentioned that we take some traits and we look for examples. I really like this technique. <laughs> it's just that um, we have to understand that we've idealized the partner. So we need to dismantle it piece by piece. So if you catch yourself indulging in that, what you try to do is understand that maybe you thought they were the leading actor of the movie of your life. And you have to say to yourself, but I guess they were only a walk-on. So that's just all they are. And just remember, nobody's perfect. What you're seeing walk away is what you wanted to see of them. There's a lot more. They weren't the right one or they'd still be there. They'd still try and work it out with you. They would have treated you better. They would have communicated with you more. So you have to logically use that. There is a little exercise that I have. There's that you can take out a sheet of paper and you write down three admirable qualities that they possessed. And you just do this very quickly off the top of the head, like they were industrious, they were on time, they were kind to animals. And then you ask yourself, did any of those qualities that I so admire apply to me directly? Like, were they always on time with me? Were they always kind to me? Or was it a generic trait that they had in general, but didn't choose to show me? So sometimes you realize that the very thing that you admired about them, they're so hardworking. Yeah, but they never made you a priority. That's where the fantasy gets revealed. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all of our amazing sponsors and discount codes, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, back to the show. Right, so we start to think of tangible examples for these quick three, four traits we rattle off above or earlier 
on the paper, and we think, all right, so they're really, really caring. Well, actually, now I'm starting to have trouble, and that's how you notice whether it's a rationalization or not, because you go, kind animals, yeah, once I saw him pet a dog or something, wait a minute, no, he doesn't exactly volunteer at animal shelters or anything. Yeah. He doesn't even have pets. Yeah. Exactly. That's where you see your fantasy come away. Like, I remember dating a guy that was really ambitious, and I so loved his mindset for being ambitious. And that was good, but that was, when I looked at it, it was for himself. He wasn't ambitious in trying to learn how to get closer to me. He wasn't ambitious in creating a relationship. He was ambitious, which is admirable, but it in no way applied to something toward me. So therefore, all this thing that I had admired about him was isolated into things that were good for him and had nothing to do with me. So nice that you're ambitious, not good for me, not admirable. We're basically shining a light on this. It's like holding something up to the light and you start to see the cracks. On the flip side, you have the bad partner myth. Let's talk about that and how it relates to what we're talking about. Because it seems like, well, okay, great. No, I got it. The guy's a bastard. Well, actually, that's not true either, right? Well, that's, again, another black and white. And we tend to go between perfect partner and bad partner. We're like schizophrenic at this point. You know, one one moment you're crying over how much you miss them. The next minute you're screaming that you hate them so much. So the bad partner myth is a very quick ego fix. We tend to, you know, most people default to this position. They were rotten. She was crazy. He was abusive. He can't commit. He's a sociopath. She's out of her mind. She's hysterical. She's a drama queen. We get these labels and we feel for a moment like we're supported by this. Oh, yes. Now, the only reason we create the bad partner myth is because we're really hoping that if we say that enough, we won't want them. But it's kind of like the person that complains all the time about something. It still keeps us in the loop. It's another way of keeping us in the loop. So it's this quick ego fix, but it tends to backfire on us because as we go and make our complaint to all of our friends, oh, he was so rotten, and then he did this, and can you believe he did that, and he didn't do this, you think you're getting support from your friends like, oh, yes, aren't you glad to be rid of him? They may indeed be saying that, but the end result is you're going to walk away and you know your friends are going to say, God, I had no idea he was that terrible. What was she doing with him? Why would she be so crazy to date this guy? So in order to make them look bad, it's the boomerang thing. We start to look like we're crazy, like we have low self-esteem, like we don't know what we're doing to have loved somebody like this. Right, like you must be an idiot. You're getting with all kinds of yodels. I don't want to want to be around you anymore, right? Exactly. So it feels like a temporary win. You know, all these ego things, whenever I tell one of my guy friends, whatever your first instinct to do is wrong, because his first instinct is to make his ego big and to make him feel good around a woman that he thinks he's losing. And I'm like, wrong move, wrong move. Your first impulse is always the wrong move because it's ego. It's like, oh, I don't want you. I don't need you. And the truth is he does. Okay, it's a lot stronger position for him, that fake ego that comes up. It really does destroy us because it's base and it's reactive and it's just a form of defense. It's not in any way going to help us. Yeah, this makes sense, right? It just makes us look bad and it also probably has some deeper psychological impact when you start saying, that all the people that you surround yourself with are terrible and things like that. I mean, you start labeling things. and Anytime you distort anything in your own head for short-term gain, it seems like a bad idea. I can't quite put my finger on it, though. 
Well, yes, and absolutely. Why? Because then automatically we become the victim. The victim is a hard position to get out of. So if they're so bad, then I'm the victim. So now I'm doubly down. See, so here's the illusion. We think that making them the bad partner, one, we won't want them and everybody will be on our side and tell us, oh, you're so lucky to be done with them. But what actually happens is that we give them power. We give them power by making them the bad person because that automatically makes us the victim. So we're now disempowered. So we try to take away all their power by looking at it rationally. Like it's just what we do. It's the thing we do and working through our ego and making our thinking work for us. This is something that you recommend that we don't do simply because of the distortion, and and I understand that. I think the other temptation, and you mentioned this also in your triage, is then saying, okay, maybe they're not perfect and they're not awful. Maybe I'm not gonna find anyone this good again, or maybe it took me so long to find them that I just can't be alone again for another five years or another three years or something like that. It's not the perfect partner myth, it's like the only partner myth. Perfect, step five is actually called the one and only partner myth. You're absolutely on it. So this is all a process of elimination, okay? They weren't the perfect partner, okay, check. We understand that. They weren't the bad partner, check. Oh, the other category they could go into, they're the one and only, oh, only Jack. There'll never be another man like Jack. I'll never touch anyone, taste anyone, have somebody make love to me like Jack. Well. Think of how that traps you. That is a real trap. And, you know, life always shows me this thinking. It's so funny. So I'm always thinking about relationships because they show me so much about human nature. But when I can't work something out, I just look at my life in front of me. And I remember waiting for a bus in the 80s. And I talk about this in the audio booklet that, you know, that was a time that it was so unsafe to ride the subway. It was Russian roulette. And you couldn't get a cab. People would literally pull you out of a cab halfway to throw themselves in. It was a vicious city. And there'd be a bus coming. So everybody's riding on the bus. And they'd be crammed into this bus, like really like in the stairwells, just fighting each other to get on. And there's a bus behind it a couple blocks away. So it's kind of like the only bus there's no last bus. There's no one and only partner. And some of this thinking, the one, this whole the one thing, I mean, they, they make it like there is one. And if you miss that one, you've lost all hope. I do not believe that. I believe most anybody could be the one. And the one is the one when you're ready to have the one and the right one will show up. So this one and only partner myth is really another way that we keep ourselves in pain and in anxiety. And it is simply not true. That partnership ended. They fell off the conveyor belt. They were a faulty product for us. It's not a problem. They're not the last one. Because the answer to that is that we don't look at what we've achieved. We look at what we've lost. So I look at it like if I've gotten into a relationship, I've attained that. It's not a dream. It's not a hope. I did it in the real world. Okay, that means I've physicalized this thing I wanted to manifest. I had a relationship. Okay, it didn't turn out. I don't lose ground. I don't go backwards. I've already done this. So it's in my skill set. It's in my vibe. It's in my energy. I know how to do this. I start from where I am and continue upward. I don't go back to zero. It doesn't work like that. None of life works like that. Like, Jordan, you don't get up one morning and forget how to do a podcast. You don't. So it's the same is true with love. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And I, I think people have a hard time believing that once they find love, they can do it again. 
because they don't realize that there's a set of skills being built here, self-awareness being built here. They're just focused on the loss. Exactly, because we make love this crazy, un... We make it like this wild animal. It comes to you and then it runs away. And the more that we don't understand love and we don't understand the skill sets of love, there are some very basic steps. It's not confusing, but we make it like this elusive thing that maybe lands on you if you're lucky. So the more that we create love in a mystery, the more weakened we'll be with never having a sense of participation and direction with love. And it's just not that way. You know, love is a skill set. Dating is a skill set. Getting into a relationship is a skill set that's been refined. You're in a meaningful, dynamic partnership. It took you a while to develop that. And you've got a partner that is equally matched and you guys are working it out. But there were a lot of steps you took to where you are now to be where you are today. Those were all your learning curve. We don't lose that. We don't become dumb and blind and ill-equipped. You don't lose your skills. So there's no last partner. This is just where you stand today. This is where you stopped on your own mechanism that took you. Now you're going to regroup and refocus and collect yourself and be prepared for the next love. It's not like, oh my God, I can't love again. I can't start it all over again because I don't know what I'm doing. You do know what you're doing. This ride ended. That's it. Another ride is coming. I love the different point of view of the coming and going of love. I think that's important because with breakups, we kind of zoom in on the timeline, right? And it's, again, the focus thing. We don't zoom out and go, all right, over the course of my life, have I ever had a breakup? Yes, most likely. Did it hurt? Yes. Does it still hurt? Very, very little slash no. But we can't somehow then take that same model and apply it to the current relationship where we're like, I have had a breakup, but this one is different. I'm not quite sure how, but I'm never gonna get over it, although I probably will, because I always have. We're not really thinking about that, right? We're not comparing it in any sort of reasonable way. We're comparing it in a way that makes it entirely unique and completely different than anything we've ever done before, and somehow we're not gonna be able to recover. And I feel like zooming out on the timeline helps a little bit, but we also have to realize something that you had mentioned before that I thought originally sounded a little bit like, okay, this is a little woo-woo or something like that, but that love comes from within and is entirely independent of other people. And scientifically speaking, I mean, really, the emotions and chemicals are only happening in your brain, and that is somehow very empowering. That was my final step, because when people get a hold of that, that's the aha moment. You know, Jordan, in all these discourses that we have, the only one who's being trained is us. We're the ones refining our skill set to learn how to get into love, to learn how to love, to learn how to be a good partner, to learn how to get out of love. Knowledge, you accrue it and you gain more and more. It doesn't get all erased. So this one and only partner assumes that all that we've achieved, all that we know to this point is now erased and we go back to zero. And it is not like that. We are evolving. We are gaining in our skill set. It's one more thing. It's one more tier that we've gone through. So we are the ones who are learning in this process and we don't get erased. We don't go back to zero. It doesn't happen like that. Susan, this has been super helpful. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to say on this topic that I haven't asked you? Yes, that you really refined that the last step is that the love that we're feeling, that we attribute to this person running away, 
we think they've run away with all of our happiness because we see them leaving and all we know is we felt happy when they were here and that's not the truth. In real truth, we were the ones who felt love. So once you know that the love came from me, you realize the power that that has. It's like you don't need their little deposit check. You own the bank. It is your bank. And that understanding is a more mature concept, but it is the one that completely frees you. You understand that the only one that ever felt love is me. And if my partner felt it, that's awesome. But since I'm the one feeling love, I have the ability to replicate this again. And that's the thing that ultimately closes the wound. Perfect. Susan, thank you so much. We will definitely be having you back on the show. I mean, you should just go through my inbox at some point, but (laughs) I'm so happy that we got a chance to talk today. Thank you so much, Jordan. Always a pleasure. You're the best. Thank you. This is a really cool triage setup here. I really like the idea that there is power in knowing what to do in the inevitable event of a breakup, the inevitable end of romance, and knowing how our brains work and rationalize the perfect partner or the worst partner ever or the only partner ever. This can be super helpful, especially with the action steps that Susan laid out so we know what to do when this happens and we don't get blindsided. Or if we do get blindsided, we know how to handle it. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Susan on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as some of her books and website and other work here. Remember, you can tap your phone screen here with our show art up there and the show notes should pop up right on your phone. That happens with almost every podcast player now these days. I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. It's a great way to say hi, say uh, something else that's not so polite, or or just uh, check out some articles, insights, other ways to engage with me and producer Jason. Again, I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Jason, what's your Twitter? At JPDef. J-P-D-E-F, right, awesome. And I'm at The Art of Charm, so you can yell at one of us and both of us should... We'll forward it. We love to share the misery and the kudos. Uh, Boot camps, our live program details, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. The live program, really just by far in a way, my favorite part of running AOC. It's just really cool to see how people become part of the AOC family, the growth they experience over the next months and years. It's nothing short of amazing. We do sell out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it a little bit, just get in touch, we'll get you some info, plan ahead, no big deal. I also want to encourage you to join our AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or here in the States, you can text CHARMED, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. The challenge is about improving your networking skills, your connection skills, and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. And we'll email you our fundamentals toolbox I mentioned earlier on the show that includes this episode, of course. And I also do regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed here in the US to 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. And I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at the Art of Charm Podcast.com.